Thanks, Annette. And uh, welcome to the first of these evening sessions and uh, the talks for Mid-Year Conference 2018. We're exploring the grace of God, and it's going to be a great week. In these evening talks, we're just going to look at five sort of little uh, nuggets of gold from through the Bible uh, that help us to understand and appreciate the lavish grace of God. If you want to know where we are in the booklets, it's page eight. There's an outline that might help you to follow where we're going. And if you can also keep a Bible open at Ephesians 1, you might find that uh, useful as well. Let me start with a question for you. What blessings would you like? I'll ask a slightly different question. What blessings have you got? I'm sure you can list some things, can't you? Because blessings are things that are good. Firstly, there are also things that sort of come to you from outside. You, you don't earn them. You might have the blessing of a great family, the blessing of going to the best university in Perth. It's true for all of you, isn't it? <laughs> the blessing of having the finest hex debt that money can buy. <laughs> the blessings of friends, not just those Facebook friends, but real friends. But my guess is that most of us have a vague dissatisfaction. We'd like more blessings. The ones we've got don't actually cut it as we'd like. You too used to sing, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. As far as I know, they're still singing it. They still haven't found what they're looking for. They know there's a blessing out there. There are blessings that would complete my life, but not quite sure what it is. They might not even recognise it if it comes. And, and we get a sense of that, I think, when we do things like wish people a birthday wish. Because what we wish for other people reflects what we think would satisfy us as well, I think. Now, these days there's so many Facebook friends. Every day you've got to write a, a, friend, a, a birthday message, don't you, to two or three people, usually. And most of us get so lazy that uh, I've noticed that that the majority of the Facebook friend wishes now, uh, birthday wishes, just say HB. <laughs> Some go a bit further and say, well, I hope you have a nice day. Now, I need to get this PowerPoint working if I can. Aha, there we go. Um, but when it comes to actual proper birthday parties, 18th, 21st, and we go along to the party, we normally have to actually write something on a card. What do you write? Do you ever get stumped as to what to write on a card? Yeah, well, this, I think, is probably one of the most popular ones these days. I just wish that your wishes would come true. Well, what, what do you call that? That's just laziness, isn't it? I can't be bothered actually thinking what I want for you. I just wish your wishes come true, and it comes in various forms. Here's another one that says... Pretty much the same thing. This one is probably closer to the truth. <laughs> what do you want for your friends? What do you want for your family? What blessings? What success? You want happiness for them, but what brings happiness? So just to say, I wish you happiness is sentimental drivel, isn't it? You've got to know what it is that produces happiness. And happiness is actually a sort of byproduct of other things. And what do you want for yourself? 
What blessings do you want in your life? Because for most of us, there's not much clarity about that either. We live with a, a vague sense of dissatisfaction. The book of Ephesians is a letter written by an early Christian leader, an evangelist, a theologian, a, a, a church planter called Paul. He writes from prison. And my guess is there's nowhere better to get some clarity on what matters, what is worth having, than being in prison. And he begins his letter not with wishing God would bless him, but praising God for blessing us. You see verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He begins with this burst of praise for God because God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. God's been active, flexing his muscles, taking initiative. And in the next couple of paragraphs, it all just sort of cascades out. Paul tries to list these blessings and verses 3 to 14 in the original language is all just one sentence. And if you wrote a sentence that long in an essay at uni, you would fail straight away. But it just sort of bursts out phrase on phrase, tumbling out of him, being carried away. It's not always clear exactly how it all fits together, but the overall impression is very clear. He lists a heap of these blessings. Before we dissect them briefly, I want you to notice a couple of things about these, these blessings he's so excited about. The first thing is, he calls them spiritual blessings in the heavenlies. Now, spiritual blessings in the heavenlies sounds weird and unreal to start with, doesn't it? Where are the heavenlies? Well, that's a phrase he uses a few times in this book of Ephesians. And when he talks about the heavenlies, he's talking about the spiritual reality that coexists with this material reality. We know the material reality, reality we bump up against it all the time. We sit on it, we, it affects us, we eat it. But he knows, he believes, he's sure there's a spiritual reality as well, a dimension in which God lives, the angels occupy. It's unseen, but it's real. In fact, in a sense, it's more real, it's more permanent, more valuable than this material reality. And we experience its reality fundamentally in relationships, and relationships are things, personal relationships, you can't, it's not tangible, it's not material, but it's real. And he calls them spiritual blessings. And it's a deliberate echo and contrast with some of what comes in the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, God promised to his people Israel, the Jews, blessings. Here's an example of it in Deuteronomy chapter 28. And the blessings he promises are very material and physical. Big families, abundant crops, uh, multiple livestock, prosperity and health. Uh, and for people who've been wandering homeless nomads, living a very precarious existence, formerly slaves, what a wonderful prospect that was. And God delivered. But if you know your Bible at all, you know the Old Testament is only a shadow of what God really had in mind. It's not the reality itself, it's just the background, it's the, it's the photo compared to the real person. And the real is the spiritual blessings. They're more real and more wonderful than the material ones. Secondly, notice, he talks about every spiritual blessing. It's not just some. God doesn't just dish out his blessings uh, like a chemist drops, uh, uh, drops into the, the flask. 
He didn't hold anything back. He gave all of them. He didn't wait for you to try a little bit harder, pray more often, get your act together. No, instead he gave all of them out. He gives every spiritual blessing. If you're a Christian, you have, says Paul, every spiritual blessing. And then he lists a whole heap. It's not all the blessings, but it's the spiritual blessings that God has blessed us with. It's almost like the highlight reel. The World Cup soccer's been on. Anybody been watching? Anybody bleary-eyed like me? Yeah. Now, I've actually decided this time, unlike previous times, not to stay up to 3am, 4am to watch those games. I've gone to bed and and got some beauty sleep, which doesn't show, but I got it anyway. (laughs) But when I get up the next morning, I can go to SBS and I can watch the highlights video. Some games have had a whole two minutes of highlights. You get a 90-minute game down to two minutes. It's brilliant because you just get the highlights. A couple of games only had 30 seconds highlights. (laughs) They're not worth watching at all. Well, that's what this is. It's the highlights reel of God's blessings for us. And we're going to do a quick tour of the quick tour of the highlights. We're going to highlight the highlights. Uh, Because over this week, in the seminars and in other places, in some of the talks, we're going to explore these at more depth. Linger over them, savour them, drink deeply from them. But tonight is just a highlights reel. And it begins in verse 4. What are these spiritual blessings? Well, he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Now I can't get this to work. Ah, there we go. There's the list. The first one, he chose us. Now, I want you to notice two things about this. There's the timing and the purpose. The timing is he chose us before the foundation of the world, before God even began creating this physical universe in all its brilliance and and, and scope. God formed a purpose in his mind to link us to his son Jesus, to choose to be merciful and kind to us. And then having decided to do that, He created the world in which you could live and created you to live in that world. It's an incredible thought, isn't it? It means that from eternity past till today, you have been in the mind of God. Now, people slip my mind all the time. My wife even slips my mind from time to time and she reminds me. (laughs) But you have not been out of God's thoughts that whole time. And the purpose, the purpose is to be holy and blameless before him. That is, he doesn't choose us because we're holy and blameless. He doesn't look at us and say, oh man, that guy's good enough for me. That woman, she's blameless. I'd love her on my team. No, he chooses us to become holy and blameless. We weren't. (laughs) Me and holiness and blamelessness were as far apart as the East from the West. But he chose to make us holy and blameless. And in that, we see the other end of history. If he chose us before the foundation of the world, he purposed us to be holy and blameless in his sight at the other end of history. When Christ returns to wind everything up, on that day, we'll be holy and blameless before him. But you might say, Tim, I, I, I don't get this. this. This seems wrong. Didn't I choose God, but you're talking about God choosing me? Yes, you did choose God, if you have but only because God had chosen you. And then he goes on to predestined for adoption, the second part of the list in verses 5 and 6. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ 
in accordance with his pleasure and will. Predestined is the same idea as choosing, predetermining. And his purpose is even grander than pure and blameless. It's to be God's own child, a son and daughter of the living creator of the universe, a real member of his own family. It's by adoption, though. We're not naturally his children. We're, spiritually, we're street kids. But he chooses us and welcomes us into his family. Remember a friend of mine sitting down with me one day and he said, there's something you need to know about me, Tim, and I think it'll help you understand me. I've been adopted. I said, oh, that, that, that's a surprise. Why did your parents adopt you? He said, well, my parents were having trouble having children. This is what they told me. And so they adopted somebody into their family. After they adopted me, um, they were able to have two kids, so I've got a brother and a sister. And so they're the natural children. I'm the adopted child. And he said, that's always been really hard for me because I feel like they really wanted their own children and I'm just this sort of stranger that's been subbed into the family and I feel like I don't belong. I said, that must be pretty hard. He said, yeah, it is hard, although my dad tried to change it. He, he took me aside one day and he said, Steve, I want you to know something. So your brother and sister, we just got lumped with them. <laughs> we had no choice in them whatsoever. They just came along. We, we love them. We want them. But you, we chose you, and you've been specially chosen, which means you're specially loved. And that's what God wants us to know. Chosen for adoption. Specially chosen, specially loved. To be a child of the living God speaks of real personal relationship, the sort of family relationships that we have or we long for. That's what God takes us into. That's what God blesses us with. And it comes about in verse, uh, verses 7 and 8, through redemption. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Redemption speaks of liberation by paying a price. Think of a hostage, they're ransomed and they're liberated. Or in those days, most people thought of, thought of slaves when they thought about, thought about redeeming. A slave was owned by somebody else. The only way to be free was somebody else coming along and paying the full purchase price, the, the redemption price. And then you were free. You were no longer a slave. In the last couple of weeks, we've seen this incredible drama play out in Thailand. 13 people, this soccer team and their coach, uh, stuck, enslaved in a cave. And then through all the divers and everything else, they were liberated. It's been pretty tense, hasn't it? Would they get out? How many would get out? It's been very moving to see them uh, liberated and brought out to freedom. But that liberty came at a cost. Anybody recognise this person? He was a Thai Navy SEAL. He died so those boys could be liberated. He lost his life diving in the cave to get them out. That's not the only cost of their liberation. There's, there were lots and lots of people giving their time and energy. There was all sorts of equipment. But liberation is always costly. And so was ours. Our liberty, though, is not from bondage to a cave. It's fairly easy to get people out of that. But bondage to our own sin, to evil and its consequences, to death and condemnation, that's much harder. It's achieved, we're told, by forgiveness, Forgiveness won through the death of Jesus Christ, who went through hell for us and in our place. 
And redemption, forgiveness, is a very real, a very present blessing. To be forgiven by God is the most wonderful reality you can experience. To be welcomed today, now, and continuing on year after year for the rest of your life and beyond. Redeemed and forgiven. Fourthly, God reveals to us his master plan. Verse 9, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfilment, that's all the drum roll, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. As we have the privilege of knowing where this world, where this universe is heading, and that sets us apart from most people, doesn't it? I mean, most people I know who don't know Jesus don't know where this world is going. They've got their little plans. They hope that the world will hang on long enough and not, not cave in on itself before they achieve some of their own little plans, but they don't know where this world is going. There are some people who've had a plan for this world, Adolf Hitler, Stalin, people like that, even a guy called Zemanov. Anybody heard of Zemanov? He had a plan to unite the whole world through a common language. He invented a language called Esperanto. When I was a little year seven, I was forced to learn Esperanto. It's supposedly the easiest language in the world to, to ever learn. There are no exceptions. All the rules are kept by all the time. It, I still found it hard to learn. Now, did his plan succeed? How many people here speak Esperanto? <laughs> no, it failed dismally because your plan for the world will only work if you're powerful enough and you stick at it long enough. Well, God has a plan for the world. Is he powerful enough to bring it about? Will he stick at it long enough to bring it about? And the answer is yes. But what is his plan? Well, we're told his plan in verse 10 is to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Now, the word Paul uses for this is a word from mathematics. It literally is to sum up everything under Christ. Now, we do mathematics a little bit funny in our world. Is this how you do your arithmetic, your, your maths? We sum down. You see that? We write the sum at the bottom. But in the world that, that Paul is speaking in, they, they summed up. They put the answer, the sum, at the top. That is, it rules over all the elements that make up that sum. And everything finds its right place and its unity under the sum. And that's the image that Paul is trying to paint for us. God's plan and purpose is to sum up everything under the Lord Jesus Christ. So that everything finds its right place under him, under his lordship and rule. And if there's anybody in this universe I'd trust with that sort of rule, with that sort of power, it's the Lord Jesus, isn't it? Somebody who is willing to die a shameful, undeserved death for me, I can trust with unlimited power. It's a great plan. It's a brilliant plan to bring unity to a fractured world under the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's revealed that to us. He's revealed it to us in the gospel because the gospel says this universe is under new management. It's under the Lord Jesus Christ. He's been proclaimed and appointed as the Lord of all. And outlaws and rebels are called to lay down their arms. And if they do, they're welcomed, they're pardoned. There's a complete amnesty, welcomed into his kingdom, united as a new people. 
The history of this world will have a happy ending. And if you're a Christian, you know it. You know where it's headed. You know how it's going to end. And it's going to be good. And that's a great antidote to anxiety and depression and small-mindedness and myopia. And then in verse 11, he retraces some steps to get to the climax. He says, In him, in Christ, we were chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. It's a sort of mouthful to try and get your head around, isn't it? But what's he saying? He's saying that God's sovereign purposes will come to fruition. What he plans will happen. See, God is not like one of the coaches of the World Cup soccer teams who've got to just sit on the sidelines. Sure, they can issue instructions, but they can't actually kick the ball. They can just tell their players what to do. Well, God, some people think of God like that. He's just that coach on the sideline, wringing his hand, saying, well, I I wish I could do something about Tim. I wish I could save him, but his parents brainwashed him and he's got free will and I just can't do anything. No, God is God. He is totally sovereign in his world and his purpose will prevail. Do you see the implication of that? Your heavenly father is in total control of every aspect of the game, every aspect of the universe, every event in this world, everything that happens in your life. Your heavenly father is in control. Do you understand that? Martin Luther says, it's like every Christian is a king or a queen. So in his world, kings and queens were those who just sat back and everything that happened in their empire was for them and their benefit. And Martin Luther says that's what's true of Christians. If God, the creator and sovereign ruler of the universe, is our heavenly father, we are like kings and queens. Sixthly, he talks about the way we've been included in Christ. In verse 13, he said, you were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Gentiles as well as Jews, most of us, I guess, are Gentiles. We've been included in God's plans when we heard the gospel and believed it. That is, God didn't sort of just let us know about these blessings and say, aren't they terrific? And then keep us, keep them away from us. He didn't get us all excited and then drop us uh, in the poo. No, he brought us into these blessings that he'd promised and purposed. All those who believe, who trust in Jesus, have been included in these blessings, united under Christ. And God has sealed us by his spirit. Number seven, we were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. A seal was a common used thing in the ancient world. I'm not quite sure what the equivalent today is, maybe um, a tattoo or branding or something. It was marking something as not just belonging to you, but precious to you. And so if anybody else picked it up and they saw your seal on it, like that scroll with a wax seal on it, and you'd put your own imprint. It was something that represented you. It might have been an image of you or of your mascot or, or something that was important to you. You put that on the seal. You marked it as yours. Anybody else who picked it up would say, oh, this belongs to Tim. I can't touch it, can't open it. It's his. 
So it has that sense of protection. Nobody else can do anything with it. And it's a deposit, the Spirit, guaranteeing our inheritance. God has not only marked us as his own, he's guaranteed that we will inherit what is his. Now, this is critical because inheritance is something that is still in the future. You're an heir today, but you don't inherit till the day of inheritance, when the will is read out, when everything is distributed. We have every spiritual blessing now, but not every blessing. You see, there's still resurrection to come. There's still new creation. There's still a physical material completion of these spiritual blessings. We have every spiritual blessing, but not every blessing. Well, how do you go with that list of seven things? Seven blessings that God has blessed us with. If you think about it, they really are significant, aren't they? If you think about the without and with, how much difference is there? How much space is there between it? There are other things that you have. Some of you one day might get a degree. What's the difference between having a degree and not having a degree? Well, it's not that far, actually. It might get you a different job. It may get you a job with more pay or less pay. Not quite sure. You can put it up on the wall, but it doesn't actually change you very much. Maybe you're one of those fantastic 13 soccer players who've just won a World Cup winning medal. How, how big a difference does that make to your life? Well, it probably will make a bit of difference for a few years. People will remember your name. They might have seen you score a goal and you're one of that team, the French team that, that won the World Cup. But in 10 years' time, most people will have forgotten. Your name will have passed into, well, you will have been forgotten. <laughs> your name won't mean anything to anybody. But what about these blessings? To be chosen by God before the creation of the world, to be adopted into his family, to be redeemed and forgiven, to know where the world is going, be a friend of God on the inside of everything that's happening, to be a king or a queen for whom everything is working for your good by, by your father, to be included in these blessings and sealed with the spirit of God himself, marking you as his forever. They make a huge difference, don't they? That changes everything about me and about you. And how do these blessings come? Well, there's a phrase that just keeps coming. I don't know whether you heard it as it was read to us. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. And it speaks of two aspects of, of these blessings. The first is that the Father does everything in Christ. He does it through and for his son, Jesus Christ. Redemption comes in Christ's death. He doesn't redeem other ways. He doesn't send a, a team of divers in there to get us out. No, he redeems us in Christ's death. His plan is to unite everything under Christ and therefore his plan is in Christ. So none of these blessings come apart from Christ, outside Christ, that bypass Christ, whether that's Islam or Hinduism or just being a nice Aussie. Secondly, the in Christ means that it comes to those who are in Christ. It's a way of talking about trusting Jesus. So if you go to the airport and you get into a plane, you trust the plane, don't you? You trust the plane is going to be able to take off. It's going to be safe. The pilot knows what it's doing. They put enough fuel in the, in the plane so you get to Melbourne or Sydney or Albany, wherever you're going. 
And when you trust the plane, your destiny is linked with the plane. If the plane gets to Melbourne, you get to Melbourne because you're in the plane, you're trusting the plane. And so with Christ, when we trust him, when we say his death is for me, I trust him as my Lord, I trust him as my saviour, I put myself in Christ. And so all these blessings come to us in Christ. If you're in Christ, all these blessings are yours. And that means they all come together. They come as a package. It's, it's sort of all or nothing. You can't be forgiven without being adopted. You can't be chosen without being sealed, at least not eventually. So that every Christian has all of these blessings. You can't have one or two of them and you're still waiting for others. You can't be sitting around hoping and praying that God might hand out another one to you if you just wait long enough and try hard enough. And thirdly, God's motive in blessing. Again, a word that comes again and again, hidden sometimes by the English translation, is the word grace. It's in verse 4. It's in verse 5 and 6. 6, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has graciously given us in the one he loves. God's grace at the end of verse 7, the riches of God's grace. Now, grace, in one sense, is a very day, everyday, ordinary word. It just means generosity. It just means a free gift. But grace is actually quite unusual. Undeserved gift is always sort of unexpected. I don't know what happened on this site this morning, but when it was revealed that Beth Mills had been chosen to receive back not just her registration fees for NYC, but even more, you should have seen the look on her face. It was pure gold. She was, she was surprised. She was stunned. She was pleased. She was blown away. She wasn't quite sure where to look. She wanted to give it back. Grace, real grace is unexpected like that. This is what a Christian theologian has said about grace. Grace ceases to be grace if God is compelled to bestow it in the presence of human merit, or to withdraw it in the presence of human demerit. Grace is treating a person without the slightest reference to desert, to what they deserve whatsoever, but solely according to the infinite goodness and sovereign purposes of God. See what he's saying? You can't deserve it, and that means you can't undeserve it. Now, actually, there's very little like that in normal life, is there? Almost everything that happens to us and every engagement and, and relationship and interaction we have, somehow performance and desert is a factor, isn't it? Yeah, we deserve that or we don't deserve it. We deserve worse. We, we, if we do the work properly, we get a good mark. Everything in our families, everything in our friendships is, is affected by desert, what we deserve. It's very hard to cut it out because... That's just the way we're wired, the way things work. But grace is regardless of desert. It's just generosity. And as we explore it this week, I hope the reality of that becomes more and more clear and more and more precious for you. And this passage helps us to see that God's grace, God's generosity is for real. You see that in verse 5. And it's in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace. 
That is, God delights to be gracious. God delights to be generous. Now think about it for a minute. You only delight in the things that you really like, don't you? You don't delight in things that are duty, things that are responsibility, things you've got no real choice over, you've just got to do them. There's no delight in that. God delights, though, in being gracious, in being generous. It really is what he's like. His grace is real. It's genuine love. And in verse 6, Paul implies that God's grace is actually the most glorious thing about God to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely gives us in the one he loves. What do you think is the most glorious thing about God? Well, he didn't do a bad job creating the universe, did he? Just a little bit of power, a bit of cleverness, a bit of good design. Man, it blows my mind. I look at the smallest thing in the universe. Look at how an atom is designed and, and the way it works. I look at the biggest thing in the universe, the, the, the galaxies and, and, and beyond that, and it blows my mind that somebody could dream up such a, a structure and not just dream it up but bring it into existence. Man, that blows my mind. But a more wonderful thing about God is his grace. Is more glorious even than that. That's what Paul thinks of it. But there's another answer to the question of motive. God's motive in blessing us is he's gracious. He really is generous and gracious. But did you notice a couple of times it sort of twisted a bit. It says, to the praise of God's glory. It says it uh, in verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It says it in verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. It says it in verse 12, that we might be to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, to the praise of God's glory. It implies that we and God's grace to us are for the praise of God's glory, which seems to compromise, seems to undermine grace itself, doesn't it? No, not if you understand it well. You see, it means God's grace means that my purpose in life, my reason for existing, is not me. I'm too small. I, I, I'm too flawed to live for. And people who start to live for themselves, you know how ugly that gets, don't you? When somebody's full of themselves, it really is a, a turnoff. It, 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 it's something that is abhorrent and evil. And God's grace, God's generosity to me, isn't to fill me with me, but with God and the wonder of what God is like. And so Paul begins to the praise, sorry, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if being lavished with God's grace doesn't fill me with praise of God, it will just tend to self-absorption. I just think it's all about me. But it's not all about me. See, that's what happens when the gift overshadows the giver. You've seen that happen with children, haven't you? You give a child, a young child, a gift, and they don't even say thanks. <laughs> they just want the gift. They want to unwrap it. They rip off all the paper. They get into it, and you're forgotten completely. And you thought it was an act of love. You wanted to, you weren't demanding some response, but it was part of your relationship with them. And when they just get caught up in the gift, something has gone wrong. It's gone sour, hasn't it? And that's what happens when we just say, I want all the blessings, but I won't praise God. 
I don't want to live for the praise of his glory. I just want everything good. No, it's for our good that God graciously blesses us to the praise of his glory. It doesn't compromise the reality of grace. So it's not that God has a self-esteem problem and he gives us a gift so we'll notice him and thank him. No, his grace is authentic and that's why praising him for his grace is so right and so good and ultimately so helpful for us. Well, where have we been? We've seen that we've got it all. God has lavished us with his grace. That's the language he uses in verse 8. That he's, the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us in Christ. We've received every spiritual blessing. Now, I don't know what the word lavish conjures up in your imagination. Is it a banquet? Is it just the best times with friends? For me, it conjures up a, a time when I went to somebody's 21st birthday party. Now, this wasn't one of those birthday parties in a public place with lots of people. This was a, a small, intimate dinner party with some of the person's best friends. And, and we had a, a magnificent meal. The conversation was brilliant. And then at the end of the meal, they brought out the birthday cake. And my eyes just boggled because it was, uh, I think it was a four layers of really thick, rich mud cake, chocolate mud cake. And between each layer, they'd put cream and marshmallows um, and raspberries. And it was layer on layer on layer. And then over all the top, they'd put uh, fruit and then they dribbled chocolate till it was, it was coming off the cake and down and off the plate. It was just lavish. Much better than that, but something <laughs> like that. And that's what Paul wants us to imagine as he thinks about the grace of God. All these things that God has blessed us with are just lavish, aren't they? There's no other word for it. If you're not yet a Christian, can I say to you, these are the benefits of being a Christian. They're wonderful. They don't come because we deserve them. They come simply because our creator is gracious. They come as a free gift. If you are a Christian, you have all these. You have been lavished with the grace of God. See, God didn't give you one or two of these blessings, maybe some forgiveness, and then he put you on probation and said, if you, if you pass the next two years, if the next review goes okay, then you'll get another blessing. Maybe I'll adopt you into my family. If you try hard enough, you can unlock a couple more blessings. It's not like that at all. It's not that God says, I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to give you a second chance, but you better not blow the second chance. No, he lavishes us with all these spiritual blessings. And so it's no wonder as you read through Ephesians, Paul's prayer for the Ephesians is not that God would bless them more. It's not that God would love them more. Instead, if you come with me to chapter 3, verses 17 to 19, here's the sort of prayer Paul prays. I pray that you, chapter 3, verse 17, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of Christ. He doesn't pray that God would love them more, that Jesus would have more love for them and bless them more. No, he prays they'd know the love they've been loved with. 
the blessings they've been blessed with because God has held none back. And therefore, a Christian life is one of being satisfied yet waiting, waiting because we're heirs waiting for our inheritance, the very physical blessings of the resurrection. And we're longing for that day, but in the meantime, there's a genuine sense of satisfaction. I don't need more blessings because he's blessed me with every spiritual blessing. I don't need a more intimate experience with God. I don't need more spiritual power. I've been given those in Jesus. And as Paul writes from prison and pens this letter, he's not grumbling. He's not thinking, I've just got to be positive. If I can think positive, I'll cope. No, more like a little song I learnt when I was probably five years old. It goes like this. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. And it will amaze you what the Lord has done. And lastly, what do you want for others? Comes round to their 18th birthday and you're scratching around. What am I going to put in their card? Their Facebook birthday comes up. What am I going to say on Facebook? Well, the question is, what would you wish for them? Because I reckon in the light of this, this passage, I know what I wish for them. I wish these blessings. Wouldn't it be fantastic? Wouldn't it be incredible if these blessings were theirs? This would make a bigger difference than anything else I could wish for them. I don't know whether you're game to write that in their birthday cards. I'm certainly game to pray for it. And not just on their birthday, but every day. That these blessings would be for my brother, who knows nothing of Jesus. For my neighbours, who who don't give him a second thought. For some of the guys I, I, I meet at uni, who are thinking about Jesus, but are still holding him at a distance. This is what I want for them because God's been so gracious to give it to me and to you. Amen.